You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Bambi. The body. The body, the body, the body, the body, she thinks. Words lose their meaning when you repeat them. So do bodies, even in all their variations. Dead is dead. It's only the hows and whys that vary. Take them off. Exposure. Gunshot. Stabbing. Bludgeoning with a blunt instrument. Sharp instrument. No instrument at all when bare knuckles will do. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It's murder bingo! But even violence has its creative limits. Gabriella wishes someone had told that to the sick bastard who did this. Because this one is unique. Which happens to be the name of the sex worker she let off with a warning last weekend. It's most of what the DPD does these days. Hands out empty warnings in the most violent city in America. Dun dun dun! She can just hear her daughter's voice. The dramatic horror movie chords Layla would use to punctuate the words. All the appellations Detroit carries, dragging its hefty symbolism behind it like tin cans behind a car marked just married. Does anyone even do that anymore, she wonders? Tin cans and shaving cream? Did anyone ever? Or was it something they made up, like Diamonds Are Forever and Santa Claus and Coca-Cola Red and mothers and daughters bonding over fat-free frozen yogurts? She's found that the best conversations she has with Layla are the ones in her head. Detective, the uniform says, because she's just standing there, staring down at the kid in the deep shadow of the tunnel, her hands jammed in the pockets of her jacket. She left her damn gloves in the car and her fingers are numb from the chill wind sneaking in off the river. Winter baring its teeth, even though it's only gone November. Are you... Yeah, okay, she cuts him off reading the name on his badge. I'm thinking about the adhesive, Officer Jones. Because mere superglue wouldn't do it. Holding the pieces together while the body was moved? This isn't where the kid died. There's not enough blood on the scene. And there's no sign of his missing half. Black. No surprise in this city. Ten years old, she'd guess. Maybe older if you factored in malnourishment and development issues. Say, somewhere between ten and sixteen. Naked. As much of him as there is to be naked. It's entirely possible that the rest of him is wearing pants, with his wallet in the back pocket, and a cell phone that won't have any minutes, but which will make calling his mama a hell of a lot easier. Wherever the rest of him is. He's lying on his side, his legs pulled up, eyes closed, face serene. The recovery position. Only, he's never going to recover, and those aren't his legs. Skinny as a beanpole. Beautiful skin, even if it's gone yellow from blood loss. Pre-adolescent, she decides. No sign of acne. No scratches or bruises, either. Or any indication that he put up a fight. Or had anything bad happen to him at all. Above the waist. Below the waist is a different story. Oh boy, that's a whole other section of the bookstore. There's a dark gash, right above where his hips should be. Where he has been somehow attached to the lower half of a deer, hooves and all. The white flick of the tail sticks up like a jaunty little flag. 
The brown fur is bristled with dried blood. The flesh appears melted together at the seam. Officer Jones is hanging back. The smell is terrible. She's guessing that the intestines are severed on both sets of bodies, leaking shit and blood into the conjoined cavities. Plus, there's the gamey reek of the deer's scent glands. She pities the M.E. having to open up this mess. Better than the paperwork, though. Or dealing with the goddamn media. Or worse, the mayor's office. Here, she offers, fishing a small red tub of lip gloss out of her pocket. Something she bought at the drugstore on a whim to appease Layla. A candy-flavoured cosmetic. That's sure to bridge the gap between them. It's not menthol, she says. But it's something. Thanks, he says grateful which marks him out as an FNG. Fucking new guy. He dips his finger in and smears the greasy balm under his nose, cherry-flavoured snot. With sparkles in it, Gabby notices for the first time, but does not point out. Small pleasures. Don't get any on the scene, she warns him. No, no, I won't. And don't even think about taking any pictures on your phone to show your buddies. She looks around at the tunnel with the graffiti that grows on bare walls in the city-like plaque. The weight of the pre-dawn darkness. The lack of traffic. We're going to contain this. They do not remotely contain it. Lauren Bukes is the author of Moxie Land, Zoo City, which won the Arthur C. Clarke Award for 2011, The Shining Girls. She wrote the graphic novel Fairest, The Hidden Kingdom, Her new novel is Broken Monsters. Thank you for joining me, Lauren. Thanks so much. Lauren, you have a talent for excavating the dark heart of America's cities and laying it beating up on the table for your readers to see. (laughs) (laughs) What is it that draws you to these cities? In Shining Girls, it's Chicago. Here, it's Detroit. It's it's unhappiness uh, at its best. Thanks, I think. <laughs> You're making me want to run out and run a, write a rom-com. Um, I don't know. You know, it, it, you don't have to dig that deep. It's there. And I think that's what's interesting is that these cities are complicated and amazing, strange uh, metropolitan spaces where you have a clash of cultures and economics and social issues. And it's a way of kind of laying bare the problems with the world. Um, but I, I don't think my books are... I think there's a lot of hope there as well. You know, I specifically wanted to write about Detroit beyond kind of the ruin porn aesthetic. <laughs> and But you do a good job of using that aesthetic to your advantage. Uh, I'd like you to talk about the the character you create, Jono, who's a journalist. I love this guy because you, the first thing he practically thinks when we meet him is he's become an expert on his own insomnia. Yes, yeah, that's not from personal experience at all. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> well, I, I can. That's something I can certainly relate to. Could you talk about uh, as a journalist? He's just caught up in this kind of fraught competition. And one of the things I find really interesting about this book is the way you describe him. He's a little bit older. He's kind of like behind the times, just enough to want to be able to keep up, but not be able to keep up. Yeah, well, you know, he's 38 and he's been trying to be a journalist for a long time and the world has changed around him. He's, I, I think at one point he describes it like learning to do the cha-cha in the middle of an earthquake. It's, uh, he just can't keep up with the way the world has changed with Twitter, with BuzzFeed. He's ended up writing listicles 
when he really pines to write the next great American novel. And um, he meets this girlfriend in Detroit. He, he arrives and finds that all the, all the old stories about Detroit have been covered to death. You know, the, the urban farms and the Packard plant and the weird art scene. It's, it's been done. And he's struggling to find something new. And then he finds out about these murders which are happening. And he goes through quite a grotesque metamorphosis to, um, you know, chase that story. I'd like you to talk about one of the things I think that you do very well is to use these urban landscapes to create a place where just a little bit of the fantastic happens that seems logical within the context of that landscape, but also allows you to exaggerate the aspects of that landscape and turn what might be kind of uh, uh, tiresome arguments about social stuff into exciting plot points, which is what makes your book so interesting. Well, you know, I think if I wanted to just write about social issues, I could, you know, I used to have a column in the Big Issue magazine. Um, But doing it through fiction is much more powerful. Fiction allows you to step into someone's head. And using elements of the fantastical helps us to get over issue fatigue. You know, with everything which is going on in the world right now, from Ferguson to Syria to ISIS to Gaza... It's, it's exhausting, and we don't want to have to deal with that stuff, and we don't want to have to deal with the issues, especially in our entertainment. Um, so I think you have to tell a really compelling story if you want to be able to get around that. And using very strange things which happen does allow me to exaggerate those issues and to kind of play them out on a much broader scale and, and also kind of get over that issue fatigue. It is through a glass darkly. I, I love this phrase, issue fatigue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got it. <laughs> uh, I, that you do. And that's one of the things I think that's so nice about this novel is what you've crafted in terms of the element of the fantastic and the way we meet it and the way you introduce it and the way you work it through the plot arc is uh, so clever that we get to explore all the things that are really wrong with our big cities in a way that's just totally exciting. So I'd like you to talk about this kind of crafting this plot arc. Did you know this from the beginning or was this kind of an organic expansion for you? It was a bit of both. Um, I always know my endings and I always know what I'm working towards. Um, but I flailed around a lot with this book trying to figure out exactly what it was. Um, and, you know, thank goodness I've got a really excellent editor who kind of helped me see the through lines. But a lot of the characters kind of emerged by themselves. Layla came through very strongly. Uh, my editors weren't sure about me including her story at all. That's the cop's teen daughter and her social media um, experiments. But I think that becomes such a important part of the book, and, and it echoes uh, the murders and the weird stuff that's kind of leaking through the subconscious of, of Detroit, of this kind of what people like to think of as a broken city. So... Um, but I did, I did always know that there was going to be this element of the supernatural, that there was going to be, this is a slight spoiler, but it's revealed very early in the book, um, you know, an artist who is just kind of possessed by an obsession um, and his creative failure and ambivalence and wanting to be seen and wanting to be recognized. You know, I, I really like the way you uh, create Layla and her uh, mother, uh Veronica or Gabrielle. Uh, so could you talk about that? You do a great job with this mother-daughter relationship, and I see you have your uh, Are you uh, predicting your own future? I hope not. Um, <laughs> I, I, my six-year-old is traveling with me at the moment. Um, 
but I hope she's not as troublesome as Layla. I think she might be. Um, I, she's a <laughs> smart. She's a smart kid. I think I could have got into a lot more trouble if the internet had been around. Mm. And I think what's terrifying to me, having a six-year-old now, is how the stupid stuff that you and I might have done is hopefully gone. You know, there there are people who remember it, but it's not living on the internet forever to haunt us. Those humiliations are in memories and not on YouTube. And I think that's what I find very scary. And, and the the weird kind of sexuality of the internet um, and the misogyny, which is kind of rampant. So that's the kind of stuff I worry about. Um, it's, it's an incredibly liberating space to be anonymous on the internet. Um, and I've made some of the best connections through Twitter and it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. People have asked me if this book is specifically anti-internet and it's, it's absolutely not. But it is a story about what might happen on the darker sides of the internet um, with obsessions and, and hidden identities the way we obfuscate ourselves, and, the, and again, the way we need to be seen, the way we gauge our success in life by our likes and our shares and the comments, and um, it, it's scary. I, I wouldn't say this book is uh, any has anything against the Internet. It's, the Internet is, to a certain extent, almost, and I hadn't thought about this before, but the Internet is a character, I think, in the same way that Detroit is a character. Yeah. So I'd like you to talk about creating these characters that aren't people but <laughs> but have have aspects of of people. Well, you know, I think c- cities do have personalities and they do have characteristics. And it was very interesting for me to go to Detroit because obviously I wanted to write about it because of the ruined porn, because of these incredibly evocative photographs of those abandoned spaces. And to go there and stand there in an abandoned movie theater with the rotting curtains and the red chair covered in velvet that had been pulled out of its row like a rotten tooth and black squirrels scampering among the weeds and shafts of light drifting down through the dust, which you realize is probably asbestos. Um, It's an amazing experience to have, and it is very powerful. But Detroit is so much more than that. We want to reduce it to that. And I want to get at the multifaceted aspects of it. You know, I, I think... I'm really not interested in one-dimensional characters in classic good and evil, um, and I think that applies to cities and the internet and, um, you know, the things that are around us as well. Well, I really love the gallery of characters you you create here. It's a pretty big cast, and, and I'm wondering, uh, when you created this cast of characters, you've got uh, Gabriella, you have her daughter Layla, you have uh, Thomas Keene, Thomas Michael Keene. I love Thomas Michael Keene. <laughs> you have Sparkles, you have Jono, you have Jen, uh, Clayton Broom, a whole huge cast. Talk about creating this cast and managing them so that the readers get to know them and so that you got to know them. Was there a lot of uh, to and fro or did they just come to life of their own accord? Um, Jono and Layla were very easy to write. Um, I think also because Jono is just such an ass, it was just really. I mean, he starts out with good intentions and he just goes downhill. But um, but that, it was fun to write. I, I think I would hit him if I met him in real life. Um, but he was really fun to write. Um, and Layla, Layla was just great. She was she was the most ready voice in my head. Um, Thomas Michael Keane is, of course, uh, living homeless. He kind of uh, works in a church and uh, raids buildings, uh, abandoned buildings for old furniture to sell. And I based that on, um, I worked in a soup kitchen in Detroit for a day at an organization called NOAA. 
And I met this wonderful man, James Harris, and um, he and TK share some biographical details. Um, I, you know, I, I interviewed I interviewed James, and I asked him if I could use some of his story for the book. But a lot of and a lot of the phrases, like when TK talks about how he used to be a landlord in abandoniums, that was that I didn't make up that word. TK, um, you know, James James had that word, and it was part of his history. And he was a thirteen year old slumlord when he was you know a kid. Um, so it was great to be able to include those. But to manage the cast, it was really. You know, I, I kind of mapped it out on a day-to-day basis and checked in with each character to see if I had enough of a balance with them and, and to keep the stories moving forward. But of course, one of the big advantages of having a big cast is that you can sometimes see scenes from somebody else's perspective and you can show things which other characters might have missed. And that's really fun. Well, I think that uh, enables you to move the plot in, in this book in really interesting ways. Because it, this book not only has a lot of characters, it has a lot of plot. And one of the really more most interesting plots, I think, that uh, is very relevant, that's going to scare people as much as any of the monsters, is what Layla does. So talk about that, because that's a fairly uh, dicey thing to write about. I would, didn't you feel some trepidation writing about that? No, I felt very strongly that I needed to write about it. Mm. Um, so Layla and her friend Cass in the beginning are... Um, you know, they're on basically the equivalent of chat roulette, which is random video chat. And a lot of the time, if you go on this program, you will inevitably find someone jerking off. And they're specifically trying to find those guys and humiliate them. And it's kind of a crusade that Cass has got going, which Layla kind of falls into. And Layla turns her back for a moment. And the next thing she knows, Cass is actually posing as a young girl, as an 11-year-old, and trying to bait a pedophile. They're getting into catfishing, and they start having these long conversations um, with this guy who's desperate to meet who he thinks is a little girl. And and they actually make a plan to meet him, and it goes very badly wrong from there. But it was it was interesting to me to be able to look at, you know, how girls explore their sexuality online, the whole idea of things like Snapchat and and girls playing off their sexuality without actually enjoying it you know there's this whole idea in our culture that girls have to be sexy but not sexual so <laughs> that's an interesting uh, point point. Yeah. And, and and i think that division becomes really clear in the book with regards to the way they are on the internet and the way they are when they're just hanging out yeah absolutely definitely and they're they're kind of they're quite aggressive on the internet as well you know and and that's because of something which has happened which i don't want to I, I don't know if we should get into it or not. No, uh, I'm a, it's a less big, plot is more. Yeah, no, absolutely, <laughs> definitely. But but that was based on a lot of cases. Um, you know, I was also interested in this idea of the the humiliations which haunt you today if you're a teenager. When I was interviewing Detroit teenagers and hanging out with them at a theater school, they told me two interesting things. The one was that if all the world is a stage, the stage today is social media. And the rest of the rest of our lives is what happens backstage and in the wings preparing to put on that performance. And I thought that was quite a hectic um, insight from them. The other thing they told me about was this girl who, when they started as juniors, she was a freshman. Um, she, there was a girl a few years above them. And everyone knew, even before they had started at the school, that her nickname was Chlamydia. And, for, you know, for obvious reasons. And to have to live with that and to have that follow you and to have a whole new bunch of kids come into a school and to know that humiliating, terrible secret about you. I was I was very interested in that. I was interested in bullying on the internet um, and kind of sexual assault and 
the weird the weird stuff which happens and the very disturbing stuff which happens, especially to teenagers um, who don't necessarily understand how to use their privacy or protect it. Although I must say, you know, I followed some of the Detroit teens that I spoke to on Twitter with their permission, um, and they none of them use their cities. They 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 none of them use their real names. None of them use the place that they're based. So there is a little bit of obfuscation there. But of course, within the in-group, it's wide open. You know, when you were just talking, it made me realize that we used to think of the Internet as a virtual space where people like you and I sitting in a room, that's what real stuff and what happens on the Internet is sort of fake stuff. That's no longer the case. That's what this that's I think a big part of this book is that that's no longer the case. Yeah. The internet is where stuff really happens and it's more permanent than the stuff that happens between, say, you and I sitting here. Absolutely. You know, and I've heard stories about um teenagers who who get bullied, you know, and they and their parents know nothing about it. And it's all contained in this device which is in their hands all that all the time. You know, it's in their cell phone. And there is a world of hate and nastiness and viciousness. Um, that can get at them at any time, and their parents don't know anything about it. And that's that's very scary. And, of course, also, you know, gay support groups and all kinds of really good stuff as well. Um, but it's the fact that you can get hate coming into your home on this device every day. That's that's terrifying. I, I really like the way you created uh, Gabriella Versado. I mean, even her name, Versado, suggests veracity. Like yeah. She's really there for you. And, and same with her daughter. Talk about creating that mother-daughter relationship and the dialogue that, that typifies that, which I think you do a pretty good job of capturing what they really say as opposed to what sounds ex- particularly good written. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I have a lot of witty friends, so I steal dialogue from them. But... It's also, you know, Gabby. Gabby's playing tough. I mean, she has to be tough when she's a, a, a single mom cop, um, and as a, as a woman cop in particular. But their relationship is very much based on, you know, there's kind of a lot of banter, um, but there's a lot of depth beneath the banter, and it's a lot about the subtext and what Gabby's really saying um, when she teases her daughter about, you know, things that she doesn't understand on the internet. So they they really kind of play up to each other. But, of course, Layla, you know, at the same time Layla's having a conversation with her mom, she is also texting with her best friend. And you have these two dialogues running at the same time. Um, and, and Layla's also, she's learning to project. She's learning to kind of try and hide things from her mom. Um, you know, she thinks of it that she has a dial-down menu in her head. And she, um, you know, she, she drops down the file menu and loads maximum bullshit or... Um, good daughter or, you know, whatever it is, so that she can kind of play up to this role she thinks her mother wants her to be. This also is a nicely orchestrated uh, crime story and mystery where we kind of know what's going on. We we meet who's doing it fairly early on, but you've created a mystery where the criminal is not necessarily aware that what he's doing is a crime. And yep. I think that's an interesting twist on, on this kind of good and bad. And this goes back to your not making anybody pure good or pure evil. There's none of that here, for sure. No, absolutely. I also specifically wanted to make a break from The Shining Girls, which is my previous book, which had a very straight serial killer. Mm-hmm. Um, look, he had a time-traveling house, but apart from that, <laughs> you know, he was a low, loathsome opportunist, you know, just a violent, awful human being, which is what most serial killers really are. With Clayton, I, I have a lot of sympathy for him. I think he's, you know, he's... His creative ambition, uh, the failure... 
I think it's this kind of broken masculinity, and I think that's a big problem in the world. I think that leads to a lot of of a lot of problems generally of what men are supposed to live up to. I think there's a lot of incredible, terrible pressure on men in particular, which is not to say that women don't, you know, women obviously suffer a lot as well. But I really wanted to play with that and and to look at, you know, um, how you might be possessed by a dream, uh, you know, and and how we all are in a way. We are all possessed by dreams and ambitions and hopes and and sometimes that can be very devastating. I mean, the other thing is that the, the title is thematic. You know, it is... The fact is that even the monsters don't work. Um, you know, they're broken. But the, this idea of uh, calling a serial killer or a murderer or, you know, um, someone who committed just atrocities monsters, it's, that's not right. Um, there are no monsters. There are only humans. And, and it is everything that we are capable of in the world. And if we look at what ISIS is doing, for example, they're not monsters. They're not savages. That's, that's human behavior. That is what any of us are capable of in the right context or the worst context. It's really the result of civilization. Maybe not a civilization we like, but they're they're very civilized. You know, and it strikes me too that you were talking about uh, being possessed by art and you have a nice contrast between Jono, who is also possessed by his art, not to quite so great a degree, but he's also able to to get dragged down, and and Clayton. And then we have also the Dreamhouse Project. Was there really a Dreamhouse Project? And talk about art in Detroit. Art in Detroit is amazing. Um, I got driven around by an artist friend who I made on... I met him the first time I went to Detroit, and the second time he offered to drive me around. Um, And he picked me up in a funeral wagon, um, which had been used to transport a body like 20 minutes before um, because that was the car he had access to. So we drove around in that. But, you know, we went to um, some amazing art shows. The The Powerhouse District um, is this wonderful neighborhood. And it was originally a couple of artists moved in. They bought houses for $100 way back when. You can't do that now. They're more like $30,000. Um, and they turned into this whole kind of amazing artistic neighborhood. And they've done up the houses. They get magazines, big international magazines to come in, and they pay a whole bunch of artists to like, do up a house any way they like. And they have had parties in that district. I haven't been to one. I unfortunately went to Comic-Con the same weekend. I was in Detroit for a week the first trip, and then I had to leave on the Friday night, which was the night of the party. But um, I think the dream house party in the book is probably kind of a much more escalated version of that. Um, but it's it's similar to some art parties I've been to in Cape Town, um, where you know people manage to get a decent budget and put together strange and amazing things. Well, it's interesting because the you talk about broken monsters. The difference between the art in Detroit and the ruin in Detroit is really pretty much in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, John is very cynical, and he thinks a lot of the art is completely over, overrated. Um, but but there is. I mean, there is, you know, and it comes back to J.G. Ballard and uh, his book Cocaine Nights, which really looks at how artists and creativity maybe need um, damage and uh, danger and an edge. You know, you need that scratchy edge to get under your skin to make you want to create interesting art. Um, I don't know. Well, I have to say, for someone who's created very interesting and scratchy and dangerous art, I'm not sensing a dangerous edge. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, it's because you haven't run into me in a dark alley. <laughs> Look, I get all my darkness out on the page. It's all here. Okay, well, uh, one of the things I think that is really interesting in this book is the way you use uh, um, digital storytelling, and you do a great job. There's a kind of a, a little bit of a trend of people who are kind of like lashing back against having to put technology in stories because it makes it so complicated. Mm. You know, people would rather But that's sit- the way we live. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a lot easier in many ways to plot a story in 1970 where yeah. they could, the most they have is an answering machine <laughs> as opposed to, like, as you say, the whole world good and evil in your hands. Yeah. So talk about um, just making that decision to go the whole hog with everything and, and you know, your transcripts of chat rooms and re- the Reddit transcript. Well, it partly came out of The Shining Girls because I specifically cut The Shining Girls off in 1993 because mm-hmm. it was about time travel for all the reasons you've just mentioned, so that I wouldn't have to deal with cell phones, so that I wouldn't have to deal with Reddit piling on to try and solve a mystery of a time-traveling serial killer, because they would, uh, yeah, you know. Um, so I specifically cut it off in 93, and it was great, because it's a bit kind of retro and nostalgic. Um, but I missed the internet, and I, because I live, I live a big part of my life on, online, and I missed all the strangeness of the internet and what it is uh, right now and how we are shaped by that technology and also how we shape it and, and what we do with it. So I really wanted to bring it all into this. And, um, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not that new. I mean, I, Stephen King did it in Carrie where he had different kinds of media throughout the book, you know, like a newspaper story or a high school transcript or whatever it was. Um, so to throw in a Reddit chat or to throw in YouTube comments um, when Layla gets into trouble and, and to have all her social media exploding, um, it's, that is part of how we live right now. That is what you have to deal with, and that's what you will see, and that, that's what will be flowing into your phone the whole time. And the fact that she can have a conversation with Cass at the same time she's having a conversation with her mother, and the one completely subverts the other conversation, was, it was really fun to play with. But that's exactly how we live, and I really wanted to get at that. And I know it dates the book, but so what? You know, this is, it's a book about where we live right now. And American Psycho is a book about how it, you know, we lived it back then. You uh, capture one person voice on the internet all too well. Very creepy. <laughs> Talk about Velvet Boy. Oh, which is, I mean, didn't did you like have to like take a shower after writing about that guy? Yeah, no, he was pretty awful. He was. Um, that's of course the pedophile that uh, Layla and Cass stumble upon, or he finds them. But he, yeah, he was greasy and awful. Um, and you know, Layla is so angry with him because he seems so normal. Um, you know, that he's not, again, he's not a monster. You know, they find they find his Facebook profile and, you know, there's a picture of him with, like, a ketchup stain and his hair kind of damp from swimming in the river and he just he just looks like a normal guy and she wants him to look like a, you know, depraved pervert and he's not. So he was very creepy and awful to have to write about. Um, and, you know, I think his, his typos were the creepiest parts because obviously <laughs> he makes typos when he's in an excited state. I thought that was a, a nice touch. Um, you know, also, too, this is a, a novel of mystery. We have murders. Uh, it's a police procedural, and, and you do a good job with that. Did you talk to the police department? I did. I yeah. took donuts to Detroit Homicide. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> that sounds like fun. It was super fun. Um, you know, I, I, interviewed a, I interviewed a number of cops, um, including Detective Robert Haig, who's written a book about his 20 years with the Detroit police force, and he sent it to me. It's an 800-page whopper. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Um, but he also, uh, he put me in touch with Homicide and I went and hung out with Homicide for the day. 
and I interviewed Kenneth, uh, Sergeant Kenneth Gardner, and I walked him through my case, and he, he solved it. <laughs> it was really impressive. I, you know, I told him about the first body, and he was like, oh, well, you know, I think it's probably either a taxidermist or a hunter, but there might also be a race issue, you know, because it's a black kid, like, stitched up on a deer. What does that say? And I was like, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Let me add that. <laughs> um, and it was great, and he walked me through the procedure. I'm like, okay, you know, there is something bad happens at the Dreamhouse art party, how how would the police handle that? You know, how would you lock down a scene of 400 people? And he was like, well, that's going to be a nightmare. And this is going to take us this many days to process it. Um, told me real stories about stuff which has happened in the DPD, like, uh, you know, crazy stuff that they have to deal with. Like some joker leaked all the female officers' bra sizes after they were measured for bulletproof vests. You know, and but that's really interesting because that's Lord. something that's something that a female police officer would have to deal with, mm-hmm. which is not something again, not something I had thought of. And this comes from my background as being a journalist. You know, I know that the the best, truest um, details are are from real life um, and from interviewing people. And a lot of the stuff which happens to Jono is stuff that I went through. You know, when I was hanging out with the artists, and you know, we would go to these secret parties and um, have the keys parachuted to us from the top floor of the building and. It was it was crazy and and really fun. You know, one of the things I think you do well in this book is that here's a book that is paced so that you know the kind of the high points are the discovery of these of these various bodies, and you do a great job of taking us from one to the other, but also of describing the scenes in a manner that's compelling but not like uh, serial killer porn. Right. And, and I think there's a lot of serial killer porn out yeah. there. So talk about uh, making something that's delightfully twisted but not <laughs> uh, seductively so, I guess, is the case. I think it's really important to me to to do that. You know, of course, this is about grotesque bodies, um, but... But I don't want to write it in a way that, that the audience is complicit or getting off on it in any way. Um, and it, it has to be about the emotional impact of the bodies. So it is about the fact, you know, recognizing that this was someone um, and what that loss of that someone has now done to the families. Um, looking at a body in a different way. You know, when I wrote the morgue scene, I mean, how many morgue scenes have we seen? Um, I wanted to do it slightly differently and I wanted Gabby to have to confront the humanity of the kid. And she does when when the coroner, the ME, the medical examiner, lifts up his arm and exposes his armpit. And it's just got this, you know, slight tuft, the first tuft of like hair. And and she feels the how incredibly personal that is and how much of a violation that is, kind of lifting up to expose someone's armpit. Um you know, even though he's been cut in half in his body cavity and she's just been peering up there, this is this brings it back to the humanity. So I always try to bring it back to the humanity and to make it very much about the people. Well, I think, too, that um, one of the things that, that interested me about uh, the way you do this is that um, the characters within the scene, the, the people who are experiencing it, we we see it from a variety of perspectives, and mm. I think that you know going back and forth really helps too. Yeah, no, absolutely, definitely to see to see, I guess the ripples of violence. Um, the the surreal part of this book is is totally wonderful. <laughs> I think you, it, it's very rewarding. I felt you know when I go into a book like this, I kind of want a certain thing. I yeah. admit it. Maybe it's a bit juvenile, but there you go. Uh, so. Um, you want the full Stephen King. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, but what you want also is you want to feel like you're reading an adult book for adults yes. that has some thought and where 
you know, the the fun stuff, the, the monster stuff, we'll say, is is um, has some grounding in the real world and yep. in the narrative. So talk about crafting something like that. And you have a good job. We we get the we get the Indian and, and the the ancient history of Detroit in here, which I didn't know of. Yeah, no, it was fascinating. You know, everything kind of tied in. It's so great when you start doing research and you know, I was hanging out with this photographer Scott and he was telling me about the ancient Indian burial mounds. I was like totally using that. That's incredible. And and Meskwabic pottery was based on Puabic pottery. Um and you know, and and they were that was the tribe. Miskatonic. Yeah. Oh, I missed. God, I missed it in, in the but, first read. But there you no, go. No, but the um the uh, the the original people who lived in that area of Michigan were the ones who made dreamcatchers. And I was like, oh, are you kidding me? This is amazing. <laughs> so it was really great to be able to get into that. But you know, it it is about creating the build of creating something creepy in the beginning and leaving enough clues so that the audience hopefully knows that it's coming. Um, that that it is going to go just full on dark, crazy pants. Um, you know, monster. That's, <laughs> <laughs> but but still grounded and still that you really feel for the characters and that it's not going to be, you know, like a cheesy cheesy horror. That that it is grounded in reality. That you really care, um, and you're and you're worried for these people. And I think especially with Gabby and Layla, you know, when they when they find themselves in this situation, um, how that relationship then plays out under those stresses is is interesting. Well, too, I think what you capture is that the flip side of horror and awfulness is awe mm. and and I mean, that's something that Lovecraft really did well was yes. that we you might see these kind of uh, terrible awful creatures but they were also uh, pretty awesome and beautiful too and of course that's what you know awesome means was like full of awe and all meant fear and, and kind of you know um, yeah awful and awesome are Kind of the same word. I, I never thought about it that way, yeah. but yeah, sure. If maybe. you look at if you look at the root the root language, that that's what it is. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, but <laughs> but it, you know, I did I did want to play with that, and it is it is it is about being seen and about being recognized and about having your vision spread, um, you know, through through whatever means you can you can get. Now, uh, I think uh, at the service of all this is your prose. Does this pour off the tip of your pen, or because I think. The, the kind of the moments where things shift is really the way you write is extremely crafty. Thank it's you. beautiful. It's just like you take us like one little step at a time to where things that we wouldn't believe could happen, we do believe can happen. Is that uh, something that happens naturally when you start writing? Um, by naturally, you mean typing until my fingers bleed? <laughs> yeah, no, it's... um. <laughs> Dialogue comes very easily to me. Description, I have to work on. I, I have to craft. I have to sit and craft and hone it. Um, but, but yeah, you know, it, it is, I'm four books in and it's not easier. I think it's harder than it's ever been to write. Um, but I think I know what I'm doing more. Mm. Um, it's still hard work and I don't think that's ever going to go away. But, you know, I, I do feel like I'm growing as a writer and hopefully honing that particular aspect of the craft. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about The Shining Girls, mm-hmm. which was kind of a breakout novel for you. And it, it's a lot of fun. It's We we meet a man named Harper. And I you had a lot of fun creating this guy, didn't you? 
I did. You know, I had a lot of fun beating him up, really, because I hated him so much. Because he was such a vile, awful human being. That's true. Yeah. I broke it. You know, I ripped his tendon. I broke his jaw. The problem was because he's time traveling. I then had to keep track of his injuries, as well as the bodies, as well as the totems that he would take from each young woman he killed and leave behind on another young woman. So I had this mad murder web, murder map. Wish I had an app. A mad murder map above my desk, um, tracing, you know, with red. It looked like a scene out of, I don't know, The Wire or A Beautiful Mind. Photographs everywhere and red strings and black strings and yellow strings connecting the different timelines. And it was it was pretty mental. But, yeah, Harper, Harper was, um, I don't know about fun, but, but he, he was a nasty, awful human being. You did a great job at it. And I think on the other side, on the flip side, Kirby is so, like, filled with righteous fire kind of fire yeah. that, that uh, she's really fun and we see a little bit of her in uh, Gabriella's and, and Layla so yeah. talk about you know the, your women characters well you know I like I like writing troublesome women I think <laughs> um, that must uh, is this come from experience I don't know what you mean <laughs> um, look my mom's pretty troublesome and I think I, I hang out with interesting women you know I think my friends are very interesting and cool and um, I think I'm probably a little bit troublesome as well but no, it, it's, you know, I'm interested in people who are trying to do the right thing, but don't always succeed, um, who make terrible mistakes and somehow have to come back from them. And, uh, and yeah, there, there is a fire. There is a, a gutsiness. I was thinking about this the other day, you know, the fact that Harper, you know, eviscerates his victims. You know, he's, he's literally, ta- and, and he's, he especially goes for young women who are full of fire, who are full of conviction and curiosity and engagement with the world. And... I only thought about it the other day that, you know, by ripping his their guts out, that's really what he's doing. He's taking their gutsiness away, and that's what he finds so frightening and, and disturbing that he has to just, you know, quench that fire. So it's gutsy woman. Now, uh, I, you've set both your most recent novels in very distinct cities in America. Mm-hmm. These are not places you live. Uh, no. What what. How do you make? How did you make that decision? And then once you made it, you say, "Okay, Chicago, Detroit, airplane tickets, <laughs> internet, day." Yeah, um, I had lived in Chicago in two thousand and two thousand one, mm-hmm. which made it the obvious place to set the Shining Girls because I knew that it. You know, it's a time travel novel, but it's not Bill and Ted's excellent killing spree from the Paleolithic era to <laughs> the year three thousand space fixins. You know, with a stop to kill Hitler along the way. Um, it, it's about the 20th century and how we're shaped by the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'd said that in South Africa, the whole story would have had to become an apartheid story oh, and to deal I with see. that history. And that mm-hmm. would have overshadowed everything else I wanted to talk about, about women's rights, about McCarthyism and how that echoes the war on terror, about um, how we're still fighting about whether a woman have the right to control their bodies or not. And I don't understand how this is still an argument that is on the table. Um, so I wanted to play with those loops of history. Um, so I needed to set it outside of South Africa to be able to get away from that, you know, giant in the room. And Chicago was somewhere I'd lived, like Johannesburg, where I grew up. It's a bright, shining city. Um, you know, it, it has some amazing, incredible stuff about it, both of, you know, architecture and skyscrapers. Uh, the movie industry was born there. Incredible history. The first nuclear fission was in- achieved in Chicago. Um, but it's also a place that's, you know, in South Africa, we like to think that we do crime and corruption and segregation best. But um, Chicago does it pretty good. <laughs> so it was nice to be able to have a, a bright, shining city that also had kind of a lot of problems, which felt like home. So that's why I went with Chicago, and then Detroit seemed like the obvious next step. 
well, talking about the Shining Girls, you know, it it really is not just one, but several historical novels yeah. in, in one. Uh, when you made that decision to do that, did you pick and choose the chunks of history you wanted to write about? And then uh, how much did you have to trim down? It seems like you could have written a novel that would have been four times as long. Yeah, it was it was really difficult. I could have, you know, I could, I could have written a book on any of those young women of, of, on the victims, you know, because we've got everyone from an architect under McCarthyism in the 50s to an uh, African-American welder working in the shipping yards during World War II. And, um, you know, a burlesque dancer in the 1930s who danced, painted, and radium paints, you know. So they were all, they were amazing characters and amazing history. And I based all of that on real history. And I would sit and do really deep, you know, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to have an abortionist in the years before Roe versus Wade. Um, and then I found this amazing organization which which worked in Chicago called Jane. Um, and I went and I read through all their oral histories and, um, you know, made my character work for them. And, you know, it was it was amazing. You know, as soon as I had kind of my major themes, as soon as I knew I was interested in burlesque in the 1930s um, or the the Carney shows in the 1940s and, you know, a young trans uh, gender uh, woman who is trying to hide her, you know, um, her real identity. And then looking, looking, I just dug deep into each of those histories, and it was really fun. And there was so much, you know, like the girly shows were incredible in the forties. I could have, I absolutely could have written a novel about that. I could have written a novel about nuclear fission, and I, I only managed to drop in like a sentence about it. It was really frustrating, but you know, it, it you know, it had to become. It was a balance between the story and a history lesson, you know. Um, so I had to, I had to eventually choose which I was going to go for. Well, I think uh, the pacing in that novel is really great. And the way that it kind of, um, as readers, one of the really fun things about that novel is that we're building the same kind of diagram in our heads that you built. (laughs) And that's a really fun thing to put together. And we have a similar thing happening in Broken Monsters on a little more subliminal scale. So talk about that kind of plotting because, again, as readers, you seem to understand what the reading experience, what makes it fun? Well, I think, you know, somebody described my books as kind of a puzzle that the reader has to piece together. And I think that's great. You know, I think I I like to read books which challenge and surprise me and make me work a little bit. Um, And it's just what I try and do with the books is is to really kind of make you work, to give you something to play with, um, to bring your own experiences and insights to bear and I've had readers point some really interesting stuff out to me, which I hadn't realized, but on a subconscious level is totally in the book. Somebody said to me on Twitter uh, about a month ago, you know, so we've got this opening of this half boy, half deer in the beginning. And um, he said, well, so you basically killed Mr. Tumnus from Narnia. And I was like, yes, that is exactly what I did. That is exactly what the book is about. It is exactly about that kind of uh, you know, a naivety and, uh, you know, these doors that open to other places and a magical world, which turns out not to be so magical after all. Um, you know, it is it is a very cynical take on Narnia. Well, you know, it struck me, too, that both these books um, take a cue from your graphic novel, Fairyland, in that they are both, I think, perfect examples of modern fairy tales for adults, yeah. and that the Brothers Grimm would be absolutely ecstatic to read something like Broken Monsters because these are warning stories. Yeah, that's what the original fairy tale was. If you go out at night beyond the parents' fence, the something's going to get you. And- Witches and wolves and monsters are oh my, um, you know, and and they are 
in The Shining Girls, I specifically didn't want to do a Forrest Gump where, you know, the girls are going to be the next president of America or hanging out with, um, you know, uh, JFK or whatever it is. You know, they're, they're just ordinary women, but they're fighting against um, their context and they're kicking back against that. So I wanted to look at how we crush women um, generally. It, and it, it was a theme which emerged in writing the book. I knew I wanted to subvert the serial killer story by making it about the victims and making them more interesting than the killer. But, you know, the very strong feminist themes kind of emerged gradually. And, of course, I mean, that's all out of my own interest. With Broken Monsters, um, yeah, there, there's a subconscious magic to writing and, and the things which emerge through your writing. So, yes, of course it is supposed to be a warning, and it is, it is about these big themes and these big ideas, but it's also a way of me, of me figuring it out. You know, some people see psychologists, I write books and, you know, give it to you to figure out. <laughs> Tell me what's happening. <laughs> Please explain. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting is that uh, when you read, looking back on your reading experience is analogous to looking back on real experience and also analogous to looking back on a dream. Yeah. It's somewhere between the two. So writing a work of creating a work of art that's a written work of art about the dangers of dreams is, I think, uh, seems very meta. <laughs> very <laughs> meta. What's your next meta project? Do you know what it is? Yeah, I've got I've, I've got some novel pitches in um, and a comics pitch, which I'm hopefully about to sign the contract on. Um, I'd like to the comic. The comic is is pure horror. Um, I'm writing it with my South African cover designer Joey Hi-Fi. Um, and my next novel, I would like to stop killing people for a little bit. I'm really tired of killing people. Um, oh, man. And look, I'm, I'll probably kill some people, but I, I don't want to do another serial killer book. Okay. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to try and get away from that. And, and especially I think spending time in the serial killer's head. I think, I think I've kind of done what I need to do with serial killers. You mm -hmm. know, Harper is, Harper in The Shiny Girls is quintessentially a real serial killer. He's not a Hannibal Lecter. He's not diabolical. He's not brilliant and urbane, which we like to think that serial killers are, but actually they're just loathsome scumbags with impotence issues um, who, whose only language is violence. And that, that's what a real serial killer is. And people want deep insight, but there isn't any because they're empty and shallow and they're empty. With Broken Monsters, the serial killer is much more, he's much more inhabited, you know, by, by a dream and ambition and this thing that he meets in the woods, um, which is kind of... Uh, you know, evocation of all of that. Um, but I think I'm kind of done with serial killers. I don't want to spend any more time in their heads at all. It was just horrible. <laughs> well, you created some delightful reading for, for, for those of us who want to stay awake and be kept awake all night. So adding to the insomnia then. Adding to the insomnia. Well, that's, Jono would approve. <laughs> Jono would approve that you're inner journalist. Do you consider doing more journalism? Or? I, I'd love to. Um, I'm, I miss doing journalism. It's just kind of a matter of balancing my time right now. You know, if you put a gun to my head and said you can only write one thing for the rest of your life, it would be novels. Because as a story, if story is the drug of choice, this is, the novel is the best delivery system. You know, straight into the veins, straight into, you know, straight into the brain. That is absolutely the best way to get story into, into your bones. I've been speaking with Lauren Bukes. Her new novel is Broken Monsters. Thank you for joining me, Lauren. Thank you so much.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.